0: Amen. Let's go to Bibles. out. go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1327 there on that pew Bible in front of you. You want to follow along with God's Word with us. Uh, anytime you uh, listen to a sermon or any sort of teaching on God's Word, you always want to have your Bible out and open so that you can verify that what's being said is actually in the Scripture. We wouldn't want to make it any habit to uh, be just taking uh, someone's word of what's there without being sure that it is there. We want to develop a good habit of making sure that that which we hear is right and true. And let God speak to us and show us the things that he wants to show us. So... I hope your day is going good. My day started out not so good today. I got up this morning before dawn as normal on Sunday morning. I was getting in my truck to head to church and realized that I needed gasoline, which is never an encouragement in this day and age when you need gasoline, is it? So I go to the gas station. You know, it's Sunday morning. The sun's not up. You know, there's nobody really around. I'm pumping gas. And I see these signs hung across the front of the gas station. And, I mean, I can tell. I see a picture, and I can see the big word missing. And I'm like, oh, no. You know, I mean, I see the picture That's not a cat because then I'd be like, praise the Lord, it's cat's missing. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's not a cat or a dog. It's a person. So I'm like, oh, man. So I pump gas, so I go up because I want to look and see what's going on. You know, is there a child missing? What's going on? It says, you know, uh, elderly person missing and it has her picture and uh, it says she just turned 50. Hmm. I thought... I'd like to meet the person that made that sign. They might go missing. So all the way to church, I'm thinking, am I elderly? What in the world? What, did a teenager write that sign? I mean, come on. Who thinks that? Anyway, just wanted to share that little joy with you. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So last week we had a conversation about conscience, and Paul used that conversation to move into what he wants to address now. Now remember, Paul loves the church at Corinth. He invested a year and a half of his life at Corinth. He spent more time and invested more energy in the church at Corinth than he did any other church that he planted He's very vested in this group of people, and and it's been a very. Yeah, I mean, let's face it: the Church of Corinth needed more time than any of the other churches he planted. They, that was a hard place to work, and it was a, it was a, it had a lot of problems. And you remember when we studied First Corinthians? How I said it was, it was the easiest way to understand Corinth would be the modern would be to uh, the equivalent would be Las Vegas. I mean, it was just. It was just a very immoral, very tough place, but God had done amazing things. And and Paul went there and he preached the gospel in the hardest of places. And people got saved and the church began to grow. And they started to, you know, and they've gone through so many ups and downs and struggles and trials. And Paul's dealt with, he dealt with such touchy situations in Corinth, unlike we have recorded anywhere else in Scripture. And so then after 1 Corinthians, some time passes, and uh, he gets word that there's trouble there. And uh, most of the trouble centers around these new false teachers that have moved in. And as we talked about last week, their goal was always to discredit the Apostle Paul. Because in order to introduce false doctrine, they had to discredit what was already in place. And so they began to attack him personally, relationally, and spiritually. And we we looked at how the Apostle Paul navigated through that with his conscience and what it would teach us about our conscience. And so now we're going to move into this specific situation beginning in verse 15 as Paul's going to begin to address some specific things. In verse 15 he says, Now in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and to be helped by you on my way to Judea. Now, what is he talking about? See, what Paul is introducing now is that this there's obviously an issue that is developed. And it has to do with him coming to visit in Corinth. And it's just very... Uh, it's just very, you know, comforting and troubling to me all at the same time that I just returned from Brazil. And, um, and, and how so many, in so many ways I've lived this exact thing with the churches that we have planted in Brazil and their leaders. And um, they're, they always are asking me, well, when will you return? And it really puts me in a difficult spot. Because I don't really know when I'm going to return. I don't even know if I'm going to return. But I can't tell them that or they'll just freak out. And so I always tell them I hope to return and I give them a time that I hope to return. And just like our team that's back from Guatemala, as they see people that they... Uh, have grown to love and to build a relationship with last year. And then if you, as you continue these relationships, and people want to know, don't they, when will you return? Now, what, it, what this is referring to is back at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, here's what Paul says. Now, this was in the letter he wrote first of all. He said, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, and so they were very excited about this. That you may uh, send me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not know, for I do not wish to see, to see you now and on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. That's what they're talking about. That he had told them that he hoped to come to them and even spend the winter. And so, even when I read those words, I can just see them like, oh, you know, almost like a. Uh, a child, you got to be careful what you say because if you, you you're saying maybe, but they're hearing certainly, and so they're very much you know they're very much anticipating his visit, even though it's been very uh, their relationship has been strained because of the sin and the false doctrine that's been introduced. Still, they do love Paul, and Paul does love them. Now, verse seventeen. Therefore, he says. When I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, or no, no? See, obviously what's happened is Paul didn't go. He wasn't able to go. It didn't work out the way he had hoped. But as God is faithful, verse 18, our word to you was not yes and no. See, he wasn't saying yes and no. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, by Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but it was in him, it was yes. For all the promises of God... In him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Chapter 2, verse 1, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? So what Paul says is, I wanted to come to you. I tried to come to you, but it didn't work out. The Spirit didn't allow me. The circumstances didn't allow me. And as my conscience, as my witness, I determined in my heart that if I came to you, it would be painful. It wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good for our relationship. That what we needed was Space. What we needed was some time. You needed to finish dealing with things, things that there's a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, a severe letter. We're not sure. We don't have that letter. It's not part of Scripture. But he's no doubt hoping that they'll deal with some of the things. See, he's getting word back about what's going on. So he has an idea of what's going on, and he's able to understand and to discern that if I go right now, I'm going to get into the middle of some things that may be too hard for you at this moment. Maybe too, It may put too much strain on our relationship. See, sometimes life's not about whether or not we say something or even what it is that we say or don't say, but sometimes life's about the timing of when do we say it. You see, just because something needs to be said doesn't mean it needs to be said now. It just means it needs to be said. And so that's why Paul taught us about the conscience. So we would understand that we have to rely upon our discernment and our conscience and the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us through situations and circumstances. But no doubt what's happened is is that these false teachers have come along and said, you see, Paul can't be trusted. In fact, here's what they say. Paul's a liar because he said he would come, and he didn't come. It's so crazy because this has happened to me so many times in my ministry. It's happened to anybody who's in ministry. It's the favorite accusation of the enemy. And it preys, on, it preys on people who have their own struggles and are susceptible to things because they lack understanding and wisdom. So let's pray and ask God to help us this morning and we'll talk through this. Father, we thank you for your word. Now we, your people, stand before it. And ask for you to speak into our hearts. Help us to receive what it is that's before us. It's a blessing and a gift. And we recognize our flesh resents it and resists it. But may your spirit give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. That we'll, we'll leave this time with joy and gladness. Because we've heard from you. No matter what it is that you call us to do in response to these words. Thank you, for you are good, as we've already declared. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what we could do is we could just have a simple conversation about, well, you know, hey, that's life. Sometimes we think things are going to go one way, and they don't go that way, especially for Christians, if anyone ought to understand that, it ought to be people in the body of Christ, right? Because we would, you would think that we would all understand as we're led by the Spirit, we don't know what the Spirit's leading is going to be until it is, and so we can't predict circumstances. I mean, a simple explanation would be, you know, how many times have one of us promised our children that we would do something or that we would be somewhere? You know, are you going to be at my game? Dad, yes, I'm going to be at your game. Don't worry, I'm going to be there. And then you're not there. And then the child is like, well, you said you were going to be there, and you're not there. And you're explaining, but I got a flat tire, or there was a catastrophe, or this happened. or But they don't have understanding of that. All they see is, you said this and did this. But life's not that simple. That's not how things work. So let's just talk for a moment about how things work. See, the first thing we have to understand, if we're actually going to understand what's going on in this passage, is we have to understand what's going on in the world. You see, a lot of people mistakenly believe that what's happening in the world is there's this epic battle that's happening in the world between God and Satan, good and evil. And this battle's raging and all of the consequences or all the, uh, the spiritual things going on are a result of this battle. Well, that's not exactly true. First of all, let's get something straight. There is no battle between God and Satan. That battle is won. There is no battle. Let me explain to you how this is going to go down. God's going to return, he's going to gather all his people to himself, and when he goes to war against Satan and all of Satan's people, it's going to take about one millisecond, and it's going to be over. God's going to breathe, they're going to be done, he's going to banish them into uh, the abyss forever, and that's the end of that. It's not going to be a big battle. All of the things that are going to happen are just there for our explanation. It's not because God needs time because there's going to be a battle. The battle's won. Jesus already defeated Satan. Satan knows that. So then what is the battle that's raging? Because there is a battle raging. Well, what is it? Well, first of all, when the Bible says things like, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians chapter 2, but against principalities and powers against rulers of darkness of this age and the spiritual hosts and wickedness in the heavenly places. There's obviously a battle. But I want you to notice something about what the Bible says. God's not the one wrestling. Who's wrestling? We're wrestling. So there's a battle. Now how, how can we understand this battle? Well, think of it as a chess game, if you will. So God, God is, is orchestrating his great redemptive plan. And so the only reason why the battle isn't completed is because God still. Inviting and ushering people into the kingdom of God. You understand that, so that's why it's, that's why the, this whole thing's not done. That's the only reason why. Uh, that's what restrains Christ from returning and ending it all. Because once Christ returns, that's it. It's over. It's done. And who's in is in, and who's out is out. And so, and God wants, desires all people to be saved. So this this battle is about who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom. So think of it as this epic chess game between God and Satan or between good and evil. And so what's happening is God, because there is no question about who's won. Everyone already knows that. But the question is, what's yet to be answered is who among us? Who among people? Who's, who's still won and lost? See, that's still raging. And so the way that rages is through the influence, God, so God works through the influence of his people. See, Satan can only operate in the battle according to the rules that God permits. That's crystal clear in Scripture. Just read, just read the whole opening chapters of Job, God is totally in control of how everything's going to go down. So God has determined that the way he's going to fight the battle for the souls of men and women yet undetermined is through his people. So it's through the in his influence through his people that he influences for good. He works through his people for the influence of God. Satan, on the other hand, is working through his people to influence them for evil. And so as God moves a piece on the chessboard, Satan moves a piece on the chessboard. And so that's what's going on. You understand? There's no, nothing's in jeopardy ultimately of what's going to happen except for people. God's still fighting for the souls of people. That's what's happening. So that's what's happening. If you know Christ this morning, then what God does is God puts you in situations and circumstances. Everything about your life is God moving in you and working in you. All the people that you know, the people that you work with, the people that you live by, the people that you encounter, all of those things are happening because God's putting you in the path of people who are yet undetermined so that you can influence them for good. Meanwhile, Satan is doing the exact opposite. He's trying to not only keep them from listening to you, but he's also trying to prevent you, aggravate, annoy you, discourage you, stop you in any way he can from being an influence for good. And so those are the two things that are going on all the time. God's influence in you and me versus the enemy's influence through others. So get your listening guides out. We'll think of it this way. Every move God makes in our lives is about influence. That's what it's about. See, God's ultimate purpose for you and for me is is his glory. And what glorifies God more than everything that we do that brings glory to God influences people to either continue... worship God or to investigate or begin to worship God. So that's what's going on in, in, in our lives. And at the same time, every move Satan makes in the world is about influence. These are the two things that are going on back and forth, back and forth, every moment of every day. So with white hot fervency, This battle is always raging. Every moment of every day, there's a battle for the souls of people. Right? Okay, so if we understand this, then we can begin to approach situations and understand what's going on. See, because what we need to understand is that in a few months, we'll get to the judgment seat of Christ in our study of 2 Corinthians and we'll will understand that when we die and stand before God w- one of the remarkable realizations that we're going to have is that all of the people that God put in our path were opportunities where God was giving us opportunities to influence what we're going to realize all of the 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 time that was wasted it was wasted All the opportunities that were missed. As we see so many things in our lives burn up. We'll realize that what's going on in in the life of a saved person is not an accident. What's happening in your life is not an accident. It's the realization that in every blessing... In every trial, in every victory, in every failure, in the things that worked out, in the things that didn't work out, that in everything that God was doing in our lives, He was doing it to grow our faith. But in growing our faith, He was, he was putting us in positions to influence. See, because here's the thing. God's multitasking in your life at all times, believer, believer. You understand that? He's working to sanctify you, but as he's sanctifying you, he's using what he's doing to sanctify you to bear witness of his work in your life to people who don't yet believe. And at the same time, he's doing that to encourage others who do believe. See, all of this is happening. So so God is is at work in our lives to grow our faith, to sanctify us. And that's having an effect on the Christian community that we're embedded in. See, oftentimes as we get into community, the community then uh, is that's where the iron begins to sharpen iron. We begin to grow from this relationship that we share from one another. See, you'll learn a lot of things about God and a lot of things about yourself just by sitting and listening to other people who have the courage to speak up and talk. Until you get the courage to speak up and talk. But you'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot. And so God is multitasking. He's doing all of these things in our lives. But the thing to understand is that nothing is happening by accident. And it's all being, this battle is being fought according to the way God's determined that it's going to be fought. See, this was all his idea. He determined to do it this way. Now, why? I mean, you know, some of you, I'm sure, are bothered by this. You know, you just feel like, well, well, you know. Well, why would God do it this way? Well, the simple answer is because he wants to. Shut up. It's none of your business. (laughs) But I want to be more helpful than that. Okay? So... Well, think about it. If there's a battle raging for the souls of men and women that are yet undetermined, it's not that God, when I say undetermined, it's not undetermined to God, it's just undetermined to them, right? It's undetermined to us. God always knew that I was gonna get saved, but I didn't know that. But God knew that just because he has foreknowledge. but God didn't cause it to happen. It still had to be by free will. So, So we talk about this all the time. If there's no choice, there's no love. There has to be choice to be loved. God's not interested in robotic followers. And so in order for that to, to work, so how is God going to? So think about it. It, it, then it. Then it makes sense. How else would God reach people in a way That the people that are reached would be reached in a genuine way. It could only be through other people, because if God did it some other way, then it would somehow skew, and people would just—they would just want God for things. If if God did it, you see what I mean. If if God if God just made all the problems of all the people that followed Him go away and their lives work wonderful, then people would just follow Him to get rid of their problems. But see, God's only interested in people who follow him for him. So see, you're like, it's it's just this, you have to understand what's going on. And you have to realize that it's the only way that it could work. So, So really, God's weapon, for lack of a better word, in this war is his people. That's what he uses us for good. That's our. That's what we're. That's what we do. But but it's not that he uses us um, unconsciously. Because again, does God force us? No, he just invites us. See. And so again, it's our willingness to be moved on the chess board by God, our willingness to participate and to be open to the things that God wants to do in our lives. Let me try to help you. You can write down your listening guide, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. So here's how Matthew 22 opens. The first verse of that chapter says, Jesus is back and forth in the previous chapter with the scribes and the Pharisees who are accusing him of all sorts of things, as usual. And then the Bible says Jesus then responds with a parable, or he, says, he tells them this story. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage feast for his son. So a lot of you will be familiar with this story. And so what Jesus does is he tells a story about a king Who prepares a marriage feast for his son, and then he sends his servants out to invite people to the feast. And what happens? People don't have time to come. They don't want to come. They don't respond to the invitation. And so the king sort of, uh, you know, regroups. And then here's what the Bible says. In verse 8, he says, Now, then he says to his servants, so a second time, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So the first group were not worthy. Why? Because they didn't willingly come. So they're not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, what is the significance of this parable? Why am I bringing this to light now? I want you to think about something. Jesus said this story is evidence to the kingdom of God, to how the kingdom of God works. So the story about this king inviting people to this feast is like the way the king invites people to the feast. It's it's like the way people are invited into the kingdom of God, right? Okay. So here's my question. Why did the king send his servants out to invite the people in the first place? He's the king. He could have done a lot of other things. In other words, if you're the king, then you can do whatever you want to do, right? So if you're the king and what's most important to you is that a lot of people come to your feast for your son, right? If, if, your highest, if, you, if you're not worried about who comes or why they come, you just want people to come, you would never do it this way, would you? No. I mean, not, not unless you're just dumb. Here's what you would do. This is what I would do. I would deliver gold bars to everyone's house with an engraved invitation on the gold bar. uh, Accept the gold bar as you accept the invitation to come to my son's wedding feast. I guarantee you nobody's turning that down. I mean, there you go. There's a simple way. You could say, hey, everyone that comes to my son's wedding feast doesn't pay taxes for a year or for two years or for 10 years. I'm the king. What do I care? Right? Then you don't have a problem, do you? Unless what you care about is the motive. What if there's more to this story than just who comes to the feast? And, and this is just an, uh, an illustration of the way this works in heaven. This is, this is how God invites people into the kingdom. So, why would God invite people into the kingdom through people? In other words, you're God, you could do anything. So if I'm God and I just want the kingdom to be full of people, if I just want to get a bunch of people into heaven, no problem. I just snap my fingers. I make the sun start blinking red. That's going to get everybody's attention. The sun turns red and starts blinking. Nobody's going to not know, hey, everybody's going to go, what in the world is going on? Everybody's going to come outside. Everybody's going to look up at the red blinking sun. Now that I have everyone's attention, I can just have a voice come from heaven, or I can have, you know, maybe some nice bright yellow letters appear on the red circle of the sun that invite people to come to the uh, wedding, or I can, I mean, I could do anything I want to do, right? I mean, I could just use any supernatural power I want to, to get people to come to this feast, or to come to the kingdom of heaven. I could just I could disseminate this information so many easier ways than sending a bunch of servants. Unless I wanted people to come for the right reasons. Unless I cared about the motive of the people who came. You see God works this way because it reveals not only what God desires, that he, he doesn't, God doesn't just accept anything. No, no, He wants our hearts. And so he, he works in the lives of those who don't yet believe in a very specific way. And God uses us because He wants to, not because He has to. Because he wants to. It, our, one of our highest and greatest privileges in this life is the fact that God uses us. Yeah. See, he uses us. And again, if you read the, the whole story in Matthew 22, then at the end of the story, the last thing that happens is the wedding hall is filled with people. And the king enters the hall filled with people. And what happens? He notices one person who has come into the wedding, but who is not wearing proper wedding garments. And the king doesn't say, well, it's okay, because I just wanted people to come. No, see, someone tried to come to the wedding on their own terms. Someone tried to come to the wedding in, by hypocrisy. Somebody tried to come to the wedding in their own way and by their own power. And the king would not have it and had him expelled from the wedding, right? Again, just confirming what I'm saying. So now if we understand there's this epic battle, but this is actually what the battle is. And this is how the battle is raging. This is the terms by which God has set for this engagement to happen back and forth. Now we're ready to begin to understand some things about living life in this new covenant moment. And the first thing we need to understand is that in God's economy, understanding follows obedience. What does this mean? This means that the the chess master... Doesn't tell the piece, here's what I'm about to do, here's where I'm going to move you, and here's why I'm going to move you there. He doesn't talk to the pieces. You know what he does? He just moves them according to his wisdom. Now, here's where the illustration starts to break down. So, If the pieces had some consciousness, which they do if we're the pieces, right? So the piece doesn't understand where God's going to move, which piece next or what. But once God moves the piece and then the move is orchestrated, the piece can then understand, oh, that's what he was doing. Right? Right? Okay. So this is how it works for me and you as we're living in this moment. And and the again, you can't read the Bible and not discern this. It's all over the place. Write down Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I'll read this to you. This is the story of Philip. Now I want you to think about this as I read this. Then Philip, remember Philip's one of the Deacons chosen in Acts, early chapters of Acts, to uh, serve and and to allow the apostles to focus on prayer and the word. And so Philip is ministering in Samaria, and here's what the Bible says: Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits. crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. Now, Philip, can we just say Philip was having the day of all days, right? I mean, man, this is the, the pinnacle of his existence up into this moment. Like one minute, Philip's just a faithful guy in the crowd And then he's chosen because he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's used by God to to minister in Jerusalem. And then he's commissioned and sent off and starts preaching. and And revival breaks out. And so there's great joy in the city. All these people are getting saved. Everything's going amazing. I mean, man, this is the best day ever. Until the next verse comes. In the middle of the best day ever, the Bible says, Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south. Listen to these words. Along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert. Now, put yourself in Philip's shoes. Man, it can't get any better than this people are responding it's amazing god's working and suddenly an angel of the lord god sends to philip tells him i want you to leave wait wait so what leave and then he's thinking, man, imagine the place I must be leaving here to go to. Like, am I just going straight to heaven now? You've seen my faithfulness and the work that I did here, so clearly I'm going straight to heaven. No, you're going down this road to the middle of nowhere because it's a deserted place. Does that make any sense to anyone? What is Philip thinking as he's walking down the road to Gaza? What did I do wrong? What happened? Is God punishing me? What's the... What, I mean, what what... What explanation could he have for this? But you know what Philip does? He obeys. And so he just goes. Does it make any sense to him? Of Absolutely not. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so there's Philip standing there on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere going, there's no one around. I just left revival to come to this, and then suddenly there's a chariot off in the distance coming down the dirt road, and so here comes this chariot, and the Bible says there was a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch who happened to be the treasurer for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. So this Man who is in charge of the treasury of the Ethiopians is riding along the dirt road with all his servants driving the chariot and he's reading the book of Isaiah. And so Phil, Philip's, you know, but Philip doesn't discern all this. The Bible says in verse 29, then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. See, Philip still doesn't know what's going on. He just sees this guy who talks with a high voice and a chariot. <laughs> Sorry. So he, uh, he sees that, but he doesn't know what to do. And then the Spirit says, go run after him. Go catch him. So he does. And then watch what happens. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, You ready? How can I unless someone guides me? Oh, here we go. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So he's reading out of Isaiah 53, which doesn't matter. It's just... The point, but he could be reading out of anything. And the Bible says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at, the, at that scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is some water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And the man answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, in that moment, Philip understood why he was told to leave Samaria, right? Does it make sense? Not really. Is it logical? Not really. How many times have I told you God has an illogical love for the lost? That's the whole point of the story of the... Ninety-nine sheep and the one lost. It, it's, it's illogical. Why would you leave revival where all of this was going on? But that's the kind of God we serve, see? God has a love for the lost that, that will, will always strike us as illogical. And so in your, in your uh, desire to be an influence for God... Beware of your logic. Because if it always makes sense to you, then you are clearly not being used fully by God. Because it won't make sense. And so God moves Philip to where he wants him to be. He tells him to run. But listen, again, God put Philip in the right place. And at the when the time was right, he nudged him to do what he wanted him to do, but he didn't force Philip to do anything. The Bible doesn't say Philip was in Samaria preaching and then he disappeared and he reappeared on the dirt road in Gaza. That's not what happened. He walked willingly there. He re- Listen, why didn't God have the wheels fall off the chariot right when it was in front of Philip? He could have done that, right? Does anybody think God couldn't have done that? But he didn't. He says to me and you, run after that chariot. And what do you do? How many times have you stood still and let the chariot go by and thought, well, I'm not sure what God wants me to do. Because I don't have understanding. That's not how it works. Limited understanding comes after obedience. And so, the point I'm trying to make here is this that kingdom influence is the primary purpose of our lives. It's the primary purpose of our lives. And so, Now, we can understand this very simple concept in this text, this problem that Paul's having with the church at Corinth. Because now that we rightly have an understanding of who we are in relationship to who God is and what's going on in the world around us, then you see Paul promised, told them, hey, I'm going to come. He even said, if God's willing. But you know, nobody hears that. They just hear what they want to hear. And then when he doesn't come, they say, well, you lied. You said you were going to come. What? You know, at what point? This happens to me all the time. Somebody says, you know, ask me a question. I answer the question as best I can in that moment. And then two, three days later, a week later, a month later, the Spirit's doing something completely different in my life. And then they say, you said you would do this. And I go, sorry. Remember what I said last week? I, I care deeply what you think, and I care deeply how you feel, but not enough to violate my conscience. Not enough to violate my conscience. I'm not in control of my life. So anything that I say that I'm going to do is all predicated on whether or not God's going to allow me to do it. Now that's not an excuse to not do the things that you say you're going to do. But what it is is to people, listen, to those of us in the family of God, we need to understand that about ourselves. That if you ask me, about something in the past that's very different than something in the future. Those two things are not the same. See, if I say to you, hey, what did you say yesterday, and you answer, then that's either truth or it's a lie. But if you say, what are you going to say tomorrow, and I answer or you answer Because doesn't the Bible say, wait a minute, who, who are we to say, I'm going to go to this place or that place or trade this or do this or make this money or do this? Or if the Lord wills, isn't that what the book of James says? Yes. So we need to understand what's happening. God's moving us constantly on this board, putting us in places of influence. And so in this, if you ask me a question and I'm in Samaria in the middle of revival, it's going to be a very different answer than when you see me on the road in Gaza. But I didn't know I was going to be on the road in Gaza until the moment it happened. And it's the same thing for you. Now, it's not like that when we're talking to people who aren't in the kingdom of God because they have no understanding of that. And so we have to be very careful with them. But this is in the context of the church and relationships between people who should know. So in verse 21, he says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul's just simply reminding them of the gospel and what's been done through the gospel in their lives. Moreover, I call God as my witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, that I did what I did for your good. You're you're accusing me of something, but in reality what I did was for your good. For your good, because the Spirit of God showed me that if I come, it's going to be damaging to our relationship. So I can't do that right now. See, in chapter 2, he says, but I determined within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Until we could come in a better moment, in a better time. It's not what's better for me or better for you. It's what's better for the kingdom. What's better for the kingdom? For if I make you sorrowful, well, all he's saying is, if I make you sad, what gain is that? How does that help? How does that advance? That doesn't do anything. Just for the sake of being sorrowful? No. See, Paul's saying what's happened is we really have been freed. We've been freed by Christ to hope the best. To hope the best in one another. But so often times in the world in which we live in. We don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. You see because we live in a world where we've been trained that we can't trust anything. And that everybody's lying to us and trying to deceive us. And then what happens is that mentality creeps into the church. And so we start. Treating one another as if we're members of Congress instead of members of God's family. See, the Bible says in Proverbs 19, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is His glory to overlook an offense. You See that? Because doesn't the Bible say that in 1 Peter chapter 4 that love covers a multitude of sins? Sure. So even if what I'm saying is, there's no, Paul had the purest of motives. There's, he didn't sin. But even if you thought he did, Corinth, shouldn't you see the best? Shouldn't you always hope the best, believe the best? Shouldn't you remember what I said in the first letter, in chapter 13, the love chapter, when I was teaching you about love and I said In chapter 13, verse 7, that love believes all things. You know what that means? Remember when we talked about love for those weeks? To believe all things, it means that we give others the benefit of the doubt. It means that we expect the best. It means that we're able to overlook the offenses and failures of others. It means that we believe, just reminding you of what you've already heard. It means that we believe that over time we can commit ourselves to one another. Believing all things means that we're willing to trust one another. That's what it means. See, failing to believe all things is ultimately an offense against God. Because to doubt his people is to doubt him. To doubt his people is to doubt him. Because God is the one who's promised to complete what he started at salvation, isn't he? Yes. So when we doubt his people, we're doubting him. We're doubting his ability or his commitment to finish what he started. That even if there is a checkup or a hiccup along the way, which there's going to be, And so when you think about this, you go, well, well, what's really going on? What's going on in the heart of the person who can't, who can't see the best in people? Who, 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 who just rejects the fact that the Spirit of God is the one in control and moving things around in the kingdom for God's influence. And it's not, our, it's not always our understanding. I want to help you. How you see other people is an image of how we see ourselves. See, the problem in the heart of the people in Corinth, see, the problem at Corinth is not the false teachers as much as it is that there's always people willing to believe negativity always willing to jump on the boat. And the reason they are is because they're projecting the way they see the gospel in their own lives. They don't see themselves as fully forgiven and free. And that's why they tend to be negative all the time. Because you wouldn't be negative all the time if you actually believed everything the Bible and the gospel say is true about you in Christ, would you? No. You'd be so overwhelmed by the goodness of God towards you that it would flow through you to those around you, wouldn't it? Sure. And we'd be eager to forgive and to reconcile and to love because we'd realize that what's at stake is, remember, the way the world knows that we're His disciples, the way the world knows that you are His disciple is by the way that you love one another. And so when you're not loving your brothers and sisters, whose influence are you propagating? Not God's.